Today we begin a sermon series entitled High Five, Five Sermons from the Last Five Years. You voted, your voice was heard, and weighing in at number five is a message that was originally preached on Easter Sunday, April the 1st, 2018, entitled It Is Finished. I ask for you to take your Bible once again, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 19, I want to read one verse in your hearing, verse 30. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 30. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Perhaps there is no more power-packed phrase in all the Bible than the one I just read for you, found on the lips of Jesus on the cross. Jesus dramatically declares, it is finished. It is a phrase of completion and victory and satisfaction. You and I live in a world of unfinished business. We have endless deadlines, numerous things to do, never enough hours in the day, yet on This fateful Friday, in the third decade of the first century, Jesus declared, it is finished. That dramatic statement begs a legitimate question, what is the it that is finished? Some have said that Jesus is referring to his suffering, for certainly his suffering is finished. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, the English preacher of the 19th century, who said, I never fear exaggeration when I speak about all that my Lord endured on the cross. It was Cicero, that first century Roman philosopher, who said of crucifixion, it is the grossest, cruelest, most hideous form of execution. It was Dr. Luke who tells us in his gospel rendering that Jesus, on the night before his crucifixion, was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was under such stress that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It was on that night that he was arrested, betrayed by one of his own. And after he was arrested, Jesus endured an all-night barrage of beatings, interrogations, and mock trials. The next morning, when Pontius Pilate finally gave the orders for crucifixion, it was Jesus who endured a Roman scourging. And at the end of that, his unrecognizable body was so bloody and bruised, it looked like a mangled mass of flesh. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem, made his way up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha with a crossbeam strapped to his back. Certainly, his physical suffering was enormous and overwhelming. The Roman soldiers took him. They spread him wide on a cross of wood, nailed his hands to that piece of wood, hoisted him into the air. And for about six hours on that Friday afternoon, Jesus writhed in pain. His suffering was enormous. As he was hanging there, dangling on a cross made of wood, he could barely breathe because of suffocation. He endured dehydration and enormous blood loss. Ultimately, Jesus died of heart failure. It was Jesus who experienced excruciating pain. It was a death that that, that no one of us would ever want to have to endure. And while it's true that the physical suffering of Jesus is grotesque, 
the spiritual suffering was even more gruesome. For the first time in all of eternity past, never to be repeated in eternity future, there was a splintering and a severing of the sweet relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For a moment in time, there was a straining of that relationship, a straining of that sweet community, because he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus literally became your sin and mine. He took the punishment that you and I deserved. What James Boyce said is exactly true, that Jesus endured our hell so that we might experience his heaven. It is because of this that Jesus cries out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why Have you forsaken me? The next line says, why are you so far from saving me? In that moment, in a very real sense, God was forsaken by God. God the Father turned his face away from God the Son so that God might turn his face toward you and me. Jesus died a horrific death. He died a criminal's death. The physical pain was excruciating. The spiritual pain was even more dramatic. So when Jesus gets to the end and declares it is finished, what he's saying is that my suffering is finished. But not only is suffering, but also all the prophecy is finished. You probably realize that in the Old Testament there are 400 prophecies pertaining to the upcoming Messiah, and all of them are fulfilled perfectly in Jesus the Christ. My father in the ministry has oftentimes said that the Bible is not so much about the plan of salvation as it is about the man of salvation. Jesus is not only the author of Scripture, but he is the subject matter of Scripture. So from Genesis to Revelation in all 66 books, there is a woven fabric and thread that demands the coming of the Messiah in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, and only he, can do the accomplished work on the cross for your salvation and mine. Even as early as Genesis chapter 3, we find a mandate for the God-man to come. It is following the original sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And God appeared, and yes, he, he disciplined our first parents, but he cursed the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it is the Lord who says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Your offspring will strike his heel, but her offspring will crush your head. That is a poetic description of what Jesus did at Calvary's cross. For certainly, at the death of Jesus, the pain that was inflicted, uh, it it appeared as if the devil was victorious, but the reality was he had just uh, nipped at the heels of Jesus. And following the death, burial, and the victorious resurrection of Christ, as Jesus walked out, he crushed the serpent's head, uh, both now and forevermore, so that the devil is a completed, defeated foe. And Jesus showed himself as the mighty Messiah. He's the fulfillment of what God spoke in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 but that fabric of needing Jesus to come is woven all throughout the scripture you get to the last book of the Bible the book of Revelation and even there in Revelation 13 verse 8 when it exonerates Jesus and lifts him high as the only one worthy of our praise adoration and worship it is John who says of Jesus in Revelation 13 8 behold the Lamb of God who was slain before the very foundation of the world 
that Jesus is portrayed as that slaughtered, living lamb of God, that Jesus is plan A and there ain't no plan B because in God's mind, Jesus was crucified long before Genesis 1-1. And now the Bible comes full circle from Genesis to Revelation. All the prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus. Now, I don't have time to itemize all 400 prophecies. Can I get an amen? Thank you, Jesus. But if you allow me just a couple of moments, I will articulate just a few of them. It's the prophet Micah who says the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. It is Hosea who says, I have called my son out of Egypt, meaning that Jesus would have to go to Egypt, which is exactly what happened by Joseph and Mary. It is Isaiah who says that he will be born of a virgin. He will be the suffering servant that will be numbered with the transgressors. It is David in his prophetic work of Psalm 22 that says that the Messiah will come and he will die a criminal's death. He will be buried and he'll be raised from the dead. If you and I could walk through the Psalter, we would realize that in the Psalms, on numerous places, there are prophecies that find its fulfillment in Jesus. For in the Psalms, it tells us that his garments will be gambled, that those who pass by will mock and spit upon him, that not one of his bones will be broken. And all of that finds its fulfillment in the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it at every point. Everything the Bible says about Jesus is true, for the Messiah is to come, and the only one that fits that description is Jesus of Nazareth. So when Jesus declares it is finished, what he's saying is the work of the prophecy is done. The prophecy has been completely fulfilled. It is finished. And friend, I do not disagree that in that statement, it is finished, we find that the suffering is finished and that the prophecy is finished. But ultimately, what Jesus is declaring is that the atoning work of redemption is finished. What Jesus is saying to anyone who will listen is that the goal of the incarnation is now complete. Mission accomplished. The reason Jesus came was to save sinners. It's in Luke chapter 19 that we hear Jesus say, I am the son of man and I came to seek and to save the lost. In John's gospel, Jesus will say, I came to give life more abundant and free. The apostle Paul will write to his son of the ministry, Timothy, and say in 1 Timothy that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Jesus came to save sinners so that you and I might be redeemed and rescued and reconciled unto God. My friends, there are at least two things that all humans have in common. The first is that all of humanity is made in the image of God. The Imago Dei is stamped upon every person who has ever lived and ever will live. And not even the fall of man can destroy the Imago Dei. 
God's image, his intrinsic value is stamped upon every single person. That's why we can say that all lives matter. That's why we can say that red, yellow, black, and white, they are all precious in his sight. I understand that that kind of statement may not fit the cultural narrative of our day, but it does fit the biblical narrative of our day. So God says, I value each and every person that I have created, so I've stamped upon them the Imago Dei, the very image of God. You, my friend, are an image bearer of God Almighty. And it's not just you, but it's every person, any person that's ever walked this side. One thing that we all have in common is that we are image bearers. The second thing we all have in common, we are completely and totally sinful. We are not born good. We are not born a blank slate. We are born completely sinful with a bent towards sinfulness we have a craving for a cancer called sin that will kill us in fact the apostle paul says in his ephesian correspondence uh, that we are stillborn we are dead in our sin that we want to be just like adam and eve we want to be our own gods we want to call our own shots we want to do whatever we want to do we want to set up the rules and we want to do what pleases us but the lord is the only true god and all of us have transgressed against his holy law therefore all of us are sinners it only takes one sin for you to be labeled a sinner It only takes you breaking one law for you to be deemed a lawbreaker. It only takes one sin for God to be justified in an eternal condemnation of us. It only takes one example of us breaking the cosmic law for God to be justified for an eternal condemnation towards you and towards me. Cosmic law carries cosmic consequences. If this sounds a bit harsh, let me remind you of an illustration that I first heard from David Platt. David was in a foreign country. He was witnessing to a cab driver. And as he was trying to communicate the sweet gospel to this cab driver, the cab driver was having a difficult time wrapping his mind around the understanding that David's understanding of God is that God is good and loving and caring and yet because he is perfect that if we just make a handful of mistakes that we will go to a real place called hell and this was something that was hard for the cab driver to comprehend to understand so David asked him a question if I were to slap you across the face what would be the consequences and the cab driver replied I would kick you out of my cab he said fair enough If I were to go up to that police officer and slap him on the face, what would be the consequences? And the cab driver responded, you would immediately be thrown into jail. And David said, let's suppose that somehow I gained an audience with your king. And I went up to him and I slapped him across the face. What would be the consequences? And without hesitation, the cab driver said, you would die. David then proceeded to say, Every sin you ever commit is a slap across the face of God Almighty. What do you think the consequences ought to be? There was silence in that cab. Because we know that God is not being harsh, he is being just. Because God is just, 
penalty for sin has to be paid. It's either going to be paid by you for all of eternity, or it could be paid by a perfect substitute. So because God is just, penalty for sin has to be paid. Because God is gracious, he provided Jesus the God-man as the suitable substitute to make your payment for you. Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully human, has to be fully God and fully human. Because if he's not fully human, then he cannot be your substitute. He cannot be an exact representation of you. But if he is not fully God, then he doesn't have the capacity and the wherewithal to be able to cover your sin debt. But because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he is the perfect substitute to die on the cross for all of your sins, past, present, and future. It's not just one sin or little sins or some sins. Jesus died for all of your sins. He died for all your sins so that you may be reconciled to God. This is why Horatio Spafford said, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. It is the apostle Peter who says of Jesus that Jesus bore our sin upon his body on the tree. Jesus came and died on the cross so that your sin debt might be paid. And when he got to the end, he declared it is finished. The work of your atonement is done. It's completed. There's nothing more that needs to be done. It is finished. In English, it's a three-word phrase. In the original Greek language, it's a one-word phrase. The word to telestai. It was a common first century Greek word. It was a word that had a full range of meaning, and I contend this morning that Jesus meant every nuance of the word. The word to telestai could be spoken by a servant in the field, it could be spoken by a judge in the courtroom. It was a word that could be spoken by an accountant in his office, by an artist in his studio, and by a general coming home victorious from war. And I submit this morning that Jesus meant every nuance of the word to Telestai. It's a word that a servant would speak to his master when the task, the chore, the responsibility was completed. The servant would come in and say to the master, to Telestai, it is finished. You and I would say, I got her done. I did what you sent me to do. I did the chore, I completed the task, I did everything the way you wanted me to, to Telestai. And as Jesus is the suffering servant, he is dangling precariously on a cross made of wood, and he says to God the Father, the Master, he says to him, to Telestai, it is finished. In John chapter four, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That word finish is the very same word, to telestai. So Jesus said that what craves, the craving that I have, what appeases my appetite is to finish the work that Jesus, that God the Father has called me to do. And on the cross, Jesus, who is the suffering servant, says to God the Father, to telestai, it is finished. It's a word that could be spoken by a servant in the field. It's a word that could be spoken by a judge in the courtroom. Whenever the sentence had been fully served, whenever justice had been meted out, 
the judge would declare to Telestai, it is finished. Uh, Jesus is the righteous judge, and he is declaring on that criminal's cross that your sentence has been fulfilled. The, the sentence of eternal condemnation in hell that you deserve and I deserve, it's been served. That justice has been meted out. It is Paul who says in Romans chapter 5 that the disobedience of one man, Adam, makes many sinners. But the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the second Adam, makes many righteous you are declared righteous because of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I've already made the reference, yet I'll repeat it again. James Boyce said that Jesus endured our hell so that we may experience his heaven. That literally, somehow, someway, in God's majestic fashion, he squeezed an eternity's worth of condemnation into a six-hour window on that third decade in the, in the first century, on that Friday afternoon, and Jesus paid our sin debt. Jesus died on the cross and as he was dying on the cross he was serving my hell sentence. He was serving your hell sentence. Jesus died so that we might have an entrance into God's eternal heaven. So Jesus declares like a righteous judge to tell us die it is finished. Jesus also spoke this word like an accountant would use it in his office. For when the final payment came due and was paid, the accountant would stamp on the ledger to telestai. It literally meant paid in full. There's no need for any more payments to be made. The debt has been settled. To telestai, it is finished. In the very same way, Jesus came and he had a sin debt that he did not owe. Because you and I have a sin debt that we cannot pay. And Jesus paid it for us. So by his actions, he said, your sin debt is paid in full. You, there's, there's nothing outstanding. There's nothing more that you need to pay. There's no more principal payment that you need to make. There's no more entrance, entrance on, on that payment. Everything is paid in full. To Telestai has been stamped upon us. Friend, let me ask you. If you still have a mortgage, and tomorrow morning, the mortgage company were to call and to say, somebody has paid off your mortgage, what would you do? Uh, you, you would do more than that. <laughs> if the car company called and said, your F-350 truck, your car that's parked in the driveway, your boat that's in the garage, somebody came along and paid it in full. You don't know anything. Friend, what would you do? If the credit card company called and said to you, Mr. and Mrs., uh, I need to tell you that somebody came and paid your credit card debt. So all those cards that are stuffed in your wallet, all those cards that are sticking out of your purse, they're all paid in full. You've got no more debt. Friend, how would you feel and what would you do? You would hoop, you would holler, you get excited, you'd do a little dance, you'd say, thank you, Jesus, because my debt has been paid. I came to tell you this morning that Jesus 
Jesus is more than a mortgage payment. He's more than a car payment. He's more than a credit card payment. He has paid off my sin debt. He's paid off your sin debt. That's why we say Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. To tell us die, it is finished. This is a word that was spoken by an artist in the studio. Once the final brushstroke had been pressed against the canvas, the artist would step back, take a look at the portrait, and declare to Telestai, it's finished. It's a masterpiece. I can't do anything to tinker with it to make it any better. If I do a little something over here, if I do a little something over there, it'll mess it up to Telestai. It is finished. When Jesus said it is finished, it was almost as if he was an artist. And he had pressed against the canvas of salvation. And he took a step back. And when he beheld the salvation that he's extended to you and to me, Jesus just simply said to Telestai, it is a masterpiece of mercy. It is a glorious portrait of grace. There's nothing you can do to enhance it. There's nothing you can do to make it prettier. There's nothing you can do to make it better. There's nothing you can do to upgrade it. There's nothing you can do to that gift of salvation. It's just a beautiful masterpiece. It's a gorgeous portrait. And God in Jesus Christ has given us a beautiful gift, a portrait of salvation. And when Jesus, the artist, when he sees it, he simply says to Telestai, it is finished. This is a word that ultimately is spoken by a victorious general when he comes home from war. In the first century, whenever a victorious general came home, there was always a parade. In the parade, you could find all the loot that was won by that general. You would also see the enemy that had been captured by that general. You would also see the ringleader of the enemy, public enemy number one, right there in the parade. And bringing up the tail end of the parade would be the victorious general. And to the thunderous applause of the crowd, all the people lining the streets, the general would simply say, to Telestai, it's finished. To Telestai, it's over. To Telestai, no need to fear. The battle has been won. The war is over. The enemy has been subdued. He's been abducted. We've got him. There is nothing for you to fear, nothing for you to get up in arms about, nothing for you to stress over. Why? Because to Telestai, it is finished. When Jesus makes this bold declaration, he is the cosmic general. He is the one who said, by my actions, I've defeated the enemy. By my actions, I have imprisoned him. I've incarcerated him. The devil is a defeated foe. The devil is one who is incarcerated. The devil is one who is limited in his scope and his power. And Jesus says to us that the devil has been defeated. The victory has been won. Sin has been conquered. Death has been overwhelmed. And Jesus declares to Telestai, it is finished. But your enemy, my enemy, the devil himself, he wants you to think that you're the one who's incarcerated, not him. He wants you to think you're the one who's imprisoned, not him. 
So he will go around and mess you up in your life. He will try to minimize your temptation and maximize your condemnation. That's his mode of operation. What I mean by that is this, that when temptation comes at you, he will try to minimize it. Everybody's doing it. It's just one time. It's not that big of a deal. You're not going to get caught. Nobody's going to know. And then once the dirty deed is done, whatever that dirty deed may be, then he maximizes the condemnation, saying, I can't believe you just did that. God will never forgive you for doing that. Oh, God cannot love you because you have that in your past. The devil tries to minimize your temptation, maximize your condemnation. But the reality is that the devil is like a chicken with his head cut off. He's just bouncing around the world like a chicken with his head cut off. It's bouncing around the chicken pen and the chicken that's decapitated has no idea that really he's dead and in the same way the devil is hopping around this world trying to wreak havoc in your life and in mine but Jesus declared on the cross of Calvary to Telestai it is finished which means what the apostle Paul writes therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus to Telestai Jesus is like a servant speaking it to the master he's like the righteous judge saying that your sentence has been served. Jesus is an accountant who stamps over the ledger of your life paid in full. He is the artist who has given you the masterpiece of mercy called salvation. And he is the victorious general telling everyone in the streets to tell us die. The battle's over. The enemy has been defeated. Once Jesus spoke this word, the scripture says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That word gave up literally means delivered up. It's a common theme in John's gospel. Jesus was delivered up to Judas. He was delivered up to Caiaphas. He was delivered up to Pontius Pilate. He was delivered up to the Roman soldiers. But all the while... As Jesus was being delivered up, he never forfeited his right to call the shots. He never abdicated his authority to have the last word. So here we find that it is Jesus who delivers up his spirit. Jesus is in control even when life seems out of control and chaotic. Jesus is the one who tells his spirit where to go and tells his spirit when to go. It is Jesus who says, enough is enough. It is finished. He bowed his head and told his spirit to return to the heavenly father. It is Jesus who calls the shots. There are a lot of lessons at Calvary that you and I could learn, but one of those lessons is this, that even when life appears out of control, Jesus is in control. Jesus declares this and does this in the moment of his crucifixion. This is tragedy upon tragedy. Jesus is being crucified. He is dying a criminal's death. It is horrific. It is grotesque. It is gruesome. And it's Jesus the one. Jesus is the one in all of this chaos who gets the last final word. He's the one who says and makes the final shot. Jesus declares uh, that I am in control even when life seems out of control. That's a good word for us today, isn't it? Because God is in control of your tragedy. 
Jesus is in charge and he's in control of your cancer. He's in control of your sickness. He's in control of your marital problems. He's in control of your prodigal son. He's in control of your wayward daughter. He's in control of rioting streets. He's in control of cultural chaos. He's in control of ultimate brokenness. Jesus is in control even when life seems out of control. And if there's ever a time when we see that personified, it's at Calvary's cross. Because Jesus in that moment tells his spirit where to go and when to go. He bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Now my question to you this morning is how do we know that Jesus has the authority to declare to Telestai? How do we know that Jesus has the rights to declare it is finished and for it truly to be finished? How do we know that Jesus is not just mumbling here? How do we know that Jesus is not just saying whatever he has in wishful thinking? How do we know that Jesus actually has the power and the rights and the authority to declare to tell us that? How do we know this? I've got a four-word answer. The tomb is empty. I thought you might get a little more excited than that, but that's okay. The tomb is empty. In Luke chapter 9, long before the Calvary experience, it is Jesus who says, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. He'll be handed up to the rulers and the authorities. They will execute, crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. In our passage, we know it's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. It is the third day after resurrection. And the ladies, and the third day after crucifixion, and the ladies are going to the tomb and they're asking the question, who will roll away the massive stone for us? And when they got there, they saw the large stone that had already been rolled away. And seated atop it was an angel. That angel engaged them in conversation. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go and tell his disciples. The proof that Jesus can really have the authority to say to Telestai is the fact that the tomb is empty. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And because of the empty tomb, because of the resurrection of Christ, we can trust every single thing Jesus ever said or did because Jesus has the authority. He has the power. He has the capability to say to Telestai because the tomb is empty. It's Rick Warren who reminds us that the biggest difference between all other world, world religions and Christianity is the difference between two words, do and done. All other world religions tell us what they think we ought to do in order to get to God. It is only Christianity who tells us what God did and it was done so that you and I can get to God. It's the difference between do and done. And Jesus declares it's done. It is finished. It was D.L. Moody who tells the story that one day a frantic bystander ran up to him and asked, Pastor, what must I do in order to be saved? And in good D.L. Moody fashion, he said, I'm sorry, it's too late. And the man looked at him and said, what do you mean it's too late? You mean I can't be saved? And the preacher said, no, 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 you can be saved, but you can't do anything. What needed to be done in order for you to be saved, it's already been done. Jesus did it on Calvary's hill. 
Jesus died in your place for your sin because God is just. And because he's gracious, he sent Jesus the substitute to die for you. And Jesus was dead. He was buried on the third day. He was raised from the dead. The only thing you have to do is to receive what Jesus has done for you. And you receive it by faith. My friends, this morning, I I want you to know, you can either receive Jesus or you can reject Jesus, but you can't ignore him. You got to do something with him. And I would suggest that you receive him by faith. Receive all of his accomplished work. Receive all of his grace by faith. It was John R. W. Stott who said the only function of faith is to receive what grace offers. Grace offers you forgiveness, you receive it by faith. Grace offers you innocence that's eternal, you receive it by faith. Grace offers you a home in heaven, you receive it by faith. By faith, you receive what Jesus has done for you. So have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It's in the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. Jesus declared to Telestai, it is finished. How do I know that he knew what he was talking about? Because three days later, the tomb is empty. It validates everything Jesus said and did. All of our faith rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection. To tell us, die, it is finished. So if you're listening to my voice, whether you're here physically or listening online, and if you've never accepted Jesus Christ and never trusted the accomplished work of Christ, Today can be the day of your salvation. All you must do is simply say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust that you are the God-man. You are the Son of God who came to save my soul. And I trust that you sufficiently died on the cross for me. And you paid the sin debt for all of my sin, past, present, and future. And I trust you. And beyond trusting, Lord Jesus, I want to turn from my sin to the best of my ability. I want to stop doing the things that break your law. I want to start doing the things that please you. So Lord Jesus, to the best of my ability, by your power in me, I want to, I want to turn from my sin. So I trust you and I turn from sin. Friend, if, if you're here today, if you're listening today, and if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you and to be the Lord of your life, then today can be the day of your salvation. But there may be many of you who are watching and many of you that are here and you're already a Christ follower. You know the Lord, you love the Lord. What do you do with this message? I want to suggest that you take this message and once again, you say to the Lord, thank you. Thank you. I don't deserve your salvation. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve to be reconciled to God forever. And Jesus, all of that's made possible just because of who you are. So thank you. I pray that we never get over our salvation. I pray that the salvation of God makes us unglued and we never get over that. We never get over the reality 
that we don't deserve this. It's a free gift. It's what God has done for us in Christ. And the only thing I can do with my words and my walk, with my lips and my life, is simply to say, God, thank you. Thank you for this salvation. And so, Christian, if you're listening, I pray that you will live this day and every day with a gratitude that simply says to the Lord, thank you. If it wasn't for you, Jesus, I don't know where I'd be. If it wasn't for you, I'd be hopeless. I'd be helpless. I would be bound for an eternity's worth of justifiable hell. But God, because of what you've done in Christ, thank you. And it's all wrapped up in one little word to tell us die. It is finished. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody listening to this sermon who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. Open up their eyes unto your salvation. Let the scales of unbelief fall off of their heart and eyes and help them to call out to you. Father, for those of us who are believers in Jesus, help us this day to declare we need you, we thank you, we love you. Let us respond in obedience to you during this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.